to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. Today, Dave and I are joined by Welsh composer Paul Milor, writer of numerous works for choir and orchestra, film and TV, and whose piece, Ubi Caritas, was heard by over 2.5 billion people when it was performed at Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding. Paul, welcome to Composing Myself. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm, I'm, I'm especially joyous today. I'm going to say Cymru and Bith. <laughs> Wales forever. I, I'm, I am plastic Welsh, half Welsh, very proud of my Welsh side. And uh, it's great to have a, a Welsh composer. Uh, Paul, I, I, <laughs> I went on Twitter before um, we started this conversation to see, you know, what you, what you did on Twitter. But I was struck by a guy called Steve Thomas, I think, did a World Cup of classical music and you represented Wales and you did far better than the Welsh football team. <laughs> Yes, I was very pleased with that. I was sad that the Welsh football team didn't so well, but but pleased that Welsh music got up there in the top. Yeah. You beat England, which which is good, and won the that group. That was a glorious moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul, we always start these pods by asking, um, what, what, what's your first musical memory? And maybe a song or a piece of music that, you know, just sort of, as Dave used to say, made you go bang. That's amazing. You've never forgotten it. <laughs> it's a funny one, and, and, and people don't expect it when I say it. But my brother was a, was a, a really into rock. I got an older brother, and uh, the very first song I ever heard that uh, on on one of those those seventy eights uh, was um, Iron Maiden, "Run to the Hills." And uh, no one expects me to say that, especially all my religious sacred music friends. <laughs> but that was the first thing I couldn't understand the words, but I just I was like eight or something, and I just heard this immense sound which I'd never heard before uh, and, and, and my brother used to play it really loud when my parents had gone out so so I could I was like wow what what isn't amazing that, that what is this you know so I kind of got into into rock uh, when I was younger uh, not that you'd know that now but that that that's that song uh, was just a cracking song yeah how old were you then when you heard that I think it was about eight or something, eight or nine, but it was some. Um, uh, it was immense, and he had a whole load of these things, and I got into to all of that kind of stuff just through him, you know. Because when you're a younger brother, you always follow your, your kind of older, and uh, and it was uh, it was great. Of course, I soon veered away from that, but but I, what I loved about it was the kind of visceral energy in it. Uh, people were just singing from the heart; they didn't care about anything other than the music. And I just thought that, and I couldn't understand the words, so I didn't know at that point uh, <laughs> what it was all about. But it was just the energy of the music. I want, uh, boys, boys at about nine have a huge release of testosterone. Um, and I wonder if kind of heavy metal and testosterone really is a fantastic combination. I, I remember my son got really into Iron Maiden and Black, you know, the older groups as well, Black Sabbath and Zeppelin, about nine and ten. Um, yeah, may well speak to them. 
Uh, it, it's probably true, and you know, it's the drums because uh, I don't know about when, when I was nine and eight. I just wanted to hit everything. You know, I wanted to play drums. I to, it was just something physical in the music which I think appealed to me. And a lot of my friends, once I started playing it to them, you're right. I think there's something in in maybe boys, maybe a big kid. I don't know, but particularly boys uh, that. Um, Around about that age, uh, you, you're, you're into that. It's the kind of syncopation. It's the loudness of it. It's, the, it's like a, not like anything else. Yeah, we we actually, he, my, my son. I'm sure he won't listen to this, but he he had lots of sort of excess energy, shall we say, at that point. And um, you know, he, he played a lot of rugby, so we, we exhaust him. That was the thing. But at home, he would get frustrated around this age, and we bought him a drum kit. And I thought it was the the stupidest decision we'd made and my wife insisted on it and it was it was only we got a dog later and that was the best purchase we ever made but the drum kit was the second best purchase we've made and every day we'd go and 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 just drum along to this sort of music and then evolve different tastes in music later on but yeah i, I completely agree with that and that's exactly why. i mean i was hyperactive as a child i'm still hyperactive it's probably why i can write so much music but um so as a as a as a, as a kid very very hyperactive and so so you're right, bashing the the drums and, and and that kind of music really kind of beat beat it against my own stuff. So it kind of calmed me down. As I got a little bit older, my my grandparents, who were classical music fans, they they would sit me down and play Mahler at me. And of course, I found rather bizarrely, I found that energy in Mahler, although it's a different type of energy. And so that's how I started to get into classical music. Was I heard Mahler? You sit down and listen to like. 40, 50 minutes, like, wow, what the hell was that, you know? And uh, and so I kind of got something different from that. So with these two really weird worlds, um, it kind of helped me with my with my kind of hyperactivity. Yeah, well, to start with, it was kind of just to shut me up, I think. They just sat me, <laughs> sat me down and kind of not really held me there, but kind of, you know, listened to this, you know, just to something to do, just because I was just so kind of literally non-stop um and so uh so to start with it was kind of just something to sh- shut the kid up kind of thing but actually i started listening to it um and and you're right i kind of found uh, my imagination went over time uh, it's the same when you read a book i don't know about you when i read a book i really get into it and then if i see the film version i'm always disappointed because it's never quite as good as my imagination had it so um so i think it was that to start with but you're right and, and there are some people that hear music through 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 the through, through seeing it in a straight you know this some people see colors you know synesthesia that kind of thing some people see see through hearing which is why when we go to concerts seeing it as, as well as hearing it is very important to a lot of people and i was one of those people maybe you were with debussy it was so visual in its sound um and ravel and composers like that uh, there's a visualness which you don't necessarily get in some other musics uh, and so maybe it's that that helps people cross over into into class it certainly did with me because with Mara, of course, especially the resurrection was the first one, number two. And of course, this enormous story of heroism and stuff appeals to a little kid of nine, you know. Um, and so I, I was really thrown into it. And that's how I got into Lord of the Rings and, and, and C.S. Lewis and all those guys. All through that, uh, which was, I think, brilliant. Did, did you come from a musical family? Uh, amateur musicians, um, yes. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, in North Wales, as you can imagine, with uh, brass bands and uh, male voice choirs and... Uh, uh, the Stedvard and things like that. So, yeah, and I competed at Slangoslan uh, Stedvard, I think coming last when I was about nine. Or so. <laughs> I didn't do very well. Was that playing a piece or, or singing? I was singing, yeah. Uh, yeah um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I was an all right singer, but I wasn't fabulous, you know. I, I, you want me in a choir, but you don't want me doing the solo. Uh, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. I'm a good reader. I don't sing wrong notes, but they're not necessarily the best voice in the world. But um, but it was good experience to get up there on your own and, and sing, you know. Um, and I wasn't nervous or anything, which was amazing because uh, 
pretty kind of nervous generally, but uh, as soon as I get performing, I didn't, it just went. It is wonderful, isn't it? I was brought up in Scotland, being brought up in a place where the musical tradition is actually quite uh, high on people's um, appreciations. You know, and I think it's no surprise that you're a big fan of Wales and Scotland, actually, Paul. Um, but I was going to ask you, well, I am going to ask you, um, what's the first piece of music you remember writing for someone else to perform? And what was it like hearing that for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, uh, really young when I started because I, I joined the, the Cathedral Choir at St. Asaph in North Wales as a, as a chorister. And then around that time, I started working with um, William Mathias, you know, the great Welsh. He just retired. Um, my grandmother knew him in Menai Bridge and he was looking for something to kind of do outside of composing. So he kind of took me on as a private student. And the funniest thing is, as I was going for lessons with him, Alec Jones was coming out, having had lessons with Yvonne in singing. <laughs> so he... We call ourselves step friends because we used to meet on the step, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I used to go in and I think what he said to me is, um, is singing is great and piano is great, but you should learn a, a, an orchestral instrument. And he suggested the trombone because he said the trombone is great because you're in the orchestra, but you're not playing that much. So you can actually listen to what's going on and then you get to play the best bits. So I picked up the trombone and the first piece that I was asked to write was for brass band because I joined a brass band and it was a march and it was a, a march. Um, you know, it wasn't very good. Um, but, um, uh, and of course, the great thing about close friends is they'll tell you if it's crap, you know. So so they did. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of helped me, really. And the kind of feedback you get that's really honest, but isn't someone trying to score points, it's actually really honest feedback, is really helpful to young composers. Because, um, you know, the horns don't really do that, or maybe think about the piano cornet, or maybe the flugel should do this. And so you're kind of doing all this stuff. And uh, that was the first piece people asked me to write. Is that what you meant, that I, that I was asked? Or even just, um, you know, I think, I mean, how amazing to write the first piece for Brass Band with all that transposition to get your flipping head around. I mean, you know, William knew what he was doing, suggesting that, that's for sure. But even further back, did you used to sort of tinkle on the piano and make your own music? Yeah, I did. Nobody asked for those. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, <laughs> and thankfully no one's asked to hear them since. But yeah, I wrote a symphony in Crayola, which I, I wrote out in Crayola, which my, my mother has as, as blackmail for me at some point. She, what, she, what age would that have been? Oh, I was like five or six or something. But it's not music. I mean, it's not music. It's, it's me kind of thinking. But it's the idea of it, isn't it? You're, 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 you're getting the idea. Yeah, so my, my dad played tuba uh, and, and my mum played flugelhorns. They were brass brass players. Um, uh, but, and the amateurs, you know, not they'd not studied it or anything. They just learned it in the local groups. And, and my dad was a big country and Western fan. So we grew up with line dancing and all that kind of stuff, which nobody believes when I say that. And, of course, in, in the great thing about going out in Wales, if, uh, even when you're a kid, you know, you go out to the bars, everyone just burst out into singing. Uh, and they still do. Uh, so, so, of course, there was music going on. And no one was afraid to sing. Uh, what I found with you know traveling to uh, to other parts of the, of the UK, not not Northern Ireland, I have to say, um, is that you do there are people are a bit more afraid of singing, but that was never the case when I grew up. Um, and so doing music was never thought of being something that you shouldn't do. Uh, you know, it was always something. Yeah, everybody does that, so do it. My grandfather had a terrible, terrible stutter. So, and he was a Welsh speaker, and English was his second language. And he really and then moved to England, and he really struggled. Except when he sang, <laughs> he could sing. And, and I was just thinking about him because he played violin for the South Wales Philharmonic Orchestra, something, something of that sort. It was quite an important one, I think. 
but he went off to the First World War, underage, volunteered, underage, and he was in the artillery, but looking after horses, went down to Dover, 1917, I think he was about 16 years old, too young to go, a horse reared up and smashed his arm, and he got invalided out of the arm. He never actually got across to, to the war, which I think is probably a great thing. Um, but a very, and he had to give up playing the violin. He could never play the violin again because he'd severely broken his arm. But I remember going to family gatherings and, and not being able to understand what he said. And then he, had, he would sing. And he had this lovely voice. He almost could sing conversations, but he couldn't say them. Weird. It, it's it's funny that because I've I've heard a few stories like that. Sometimes people who were Welsh speakers were forced to speak English, and it brought on a stutter because uh, of the nervousness of getting. If they were getting it wrong, people would smack them as, to get them get it right. Well, there was the Welsh knot, wasn't there? That that you 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 were made made to go and stand in the corner if you spoke English in in lesson uh, Welsh in lessons. Uh, that's right, and so a lot of people developed that kind of stutter as a kind of fear. Uh, um, so that, that 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 that's not an uncommon story in Wales, uh, sadly. And it affected a lot of people quite badly in, in the uh, in their life. But your grandpa was very lucky that horse kicked him. <laughs> yeah. Well, even more lucky, he got invalided back to Cardiff Hospital. And the nurse that was looking after him was my grandmother. And, 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 and they got married underage. And about four years later, he worked, worked down the pit. And he came out of the pit one day. And his, his mother used to take the money off him on a Friday. And he said, I can't give you that because my wife is pregnant. And she didn't know he had a wife. And it was a bit of a, a, bit of a family. Ah! It all goes on in Wales. It all goes, yeah, it all goes on. <laughs> Do you know, a strange Welsh question. Have you ever read the books of Malcolm Price about Aberystwyth, Mon Amour? Yes. Yeah, they are fabulous, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. The way they paint the kind of landscape as well yeah. as the people. They're, they're, they're like a Welsh noir, you know, like a like a detective story set in LA, but they're set in Aberystwyth instead. And there's a lot of sheep and goats involved, <laughs> donkeys. They've made some of them into TV shows. There's a there's a there's a, there's a kind of take on it uh, as a Welsh TV kind of detective in Welsh, but also in English, which is the first time that's been done. So yeah, there are some kind of takes on that that have been done as a TV show. Yeah. Where did you study music, Paul? Yeah, at York University of York, and then the Royal Danish Academy of Music in in Copenhagen. Um, so I've always been attracted to places that. that you wouldn't normally go. <laughs> when I was when I was growing up, William Mathias said, uh, you know, avoid Oxford and Cambridge. Because uh, I, I thought, oh, I want to go to Oxford. That'd be a really great place to go. But he said, avoid those places. You want to go to places where you can just be completely creative and make mistakes and no one will know, you know. So, and at that time, and still I think now, York was all about composing um, and, and, and performing, uh, less so about the history of music, even though, of course, you did study that. And so it struck me, I went there to work with Nicola Lefanu, um, and uh, what was great, uh, she took me on straight away as an undergraduate, is uh, you could just write what you wanted to write, and you weren't being forced down a particular uh, avenue, which I would have been if I'd gone to, to more kind of stricter, in brackets, universities. So he was right, and, uh, and I wrote all sorts of stuff. I wrote a, a pantomime, atonal pantomime, which... I hope it's been lost, <laughs> but I kind of lost, I learned so much in doing that. And of course I had to put it on and I conducted it. And I thought that was the amazing thing about Yorkers and all the people that were there, you know, uh, Tom, uh, Tom Service was in my year, um, Sam Jackson, the new controller of Radio 3 was there. So we had this amazing group of people all doing this stuff. Um, so, uh, and I made great friends and, and, and we just did it. You were allowed to do stuff. We put on shows, Shvake in the Second World War by Breck, we just put it on, you know, everyone thought we were idiots. 
Um, and uh, uh, I don't think you could, you could do that in those other places at that time. So I had a great time. I had six years there. When you were in Copenhagen, um, I think you studied with Hans Abrahamsen. Uh, and there are not many people who can claim that, you know, because Hans being quite a private person. How was it? What was it like? Brilliant. Um, I, I, I wrote to him and to uh, Per Nergor, um, both of them, and they both accepted me. And Per said he would only be able to teach me once every now and again because he'd retire. But Hans took me on uh, and I met him every week um, for about two hours. Um, I went to his house. He had a wonderful house, which is like a fairy tale house in, in Copenhagen. And he's quite a kind of mystical person. As I'm sure you know, he's quite a very serious person, but there's a humour. And I got to know him really well, and he's become a very good friend. But he was fascinated with the idea. At that point, he'd had a, a real problem, and he wasn't composing. He hadn't composed for about two years. And he took me on, I think it was I was his only student at that point. Uh, I don't think he's had many students. Um, and he was fascinated with, uh, with um, orchestration. So uh, he said, you can compose through orchestration. So he set me some tasks of instruments I'd never written for, like the harp and the guitar and stuff like that. And then he brought in the players um, and we worked on them all together, which was absolutely fascinating. And he was interested in the smallest of detail. He's a miniaturist by nature. Um, how every single note and every single bar has to matter. And if you don't know how it matters, you're really, you're letting the performer down. And so I learned a huge amount over that that year and a half working with him every week. And then socially, uh, um, I had dinner with him and his wife. And and uh, I heard premieres. Uh, the first the first piece that he'd written since since his block was a his piano concerto and a few other things. And I was there at the premiere that his wife uh, Anne-Marie uh, performed. Uh, so it was a really special time. And when I first arrived in Copenhagen, Hans said, do you want to come to a party? I mean, I just arrived, I was 21. I didn't know anything about anything. And Copenhagen is quite a chilled place. So I said, yeah, I do. So I went to the party and there was Sofia, Sofia Gopadulina, um, uh, Georgi Ligeti, uh, Ibn Holm, <laughs> Ben Nurkol, <laughs> uh, Ben Sernson and, and me. Yeah. So it was like, what the hell? Um, and then I, I just sat having dinner with all these people, knowing nothing, having nothing to say. Um, and then uh, uh, finding out how funny they were. There was a great sense of humour amongst them all, um, which was, which, and they all spoke English because, of course, they all spoke different languages, but they all knew English. So, of course, I knew what was going on. I'd learned Danish, but Danish they spoke back in English. So <laughs> my Danish never got any better. Um, so that was the first the first night in Copenhagen. I, uh, Ligeti looked at my piano pieces. <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, the Sunday magazines, your dream dinner party as a composer. The thing is that you actually did it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that is great. And since that time, you know, you've become a really prolific composer, Paul. Um, as we were saying earlier uh, this morning, you're writing a lot of music, traveling to premieres. What I love about you is you you turn up, you know, you don't just send this piece into the wilderness and uh, let the performers get on with it. And also you're a professor of music at Aberdeen. And so I suppose the, the question, the natural question is, how do you find the time for it all? Yeah, well, it did get a bit much, actually. Uh, so um, I, when I, I was doing it, because I was teaching first year harmony and counterpoint and having writing pieces in between and then saying, it's just got too much. So so I kind of, I went part-time uh, at the university. So I, I, I just teach doctoral composition students now. I'd say just, I mean, that's a lot of work, but but um, so it's much more focused now, my, my teaching. I love living in Scotland. I have a house in Scotland and I have a house in Wales. So I, I basically straddle England. So I, I drive, I drive through. Um, uh, and so uh, for me, that, that what I like about teaching uh, with my doctoral students is you actually learn more than you ever teach. Um, 
trying to help them with their problems helps you with with your own, which you don't really, you wouldn't be able to do without that. Um, And so, of course, and then they critique my music. So, you know, are you doing that again? Are you boring? (laughs) And so you get kind of honest feedback from them as well. So so I've had about 35, 40 PhD students over the 20 years I've been here, and I've got seven at the moment. So so it's really great fun, and 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 they're from all over the world. So I get lots of different perspectives, um, and that kind of keeps you up to date with what's going on. But yeah, I I, I love attending premieres and performances. If people are good enough to do something, you should go if you can. I mean, you can't always, um, but it's good to work with people and build up relationships with performers and conductors. Because I've had relationships with orchestras and choirs that have lasted 20 years, uh, and the festivals and stuff. And I think being there is part of that, that um, I mean, the two of the big connections that I have in this country are with the Kent Festival, the Jam on the Marsh, and then the North Wales Music Festival. I mean, they commission pieces from me every year. So so I built up a huge, a huge connection with them um, and lots of others and organisations. And I think that's really important uh, for you as a, as a composer, but also for you as a human being. Before we um, we press record on this this podcast, um, you were talking about when you start working and how you work. It, it seems like you, your your productivity is a function of good habits as well. Would, would you just talk a little bit about you know when you start your working day? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I, it kind of came out of the fact that I was living with bad habits. <laughs> so kind of, so after kind of, uh, uh, I, so I decided I needed to change that. So I started getting up at six thirty. So I get up at six thirty most mornings, and not 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 at the weekend, but most mornings. And I um, I go for a walk or I go for a, a cycle. I do do something that's exercise, but also during that time I do a lot of thinking. Now, I don't play any music or anything like that. Um, I, I just walk because I live right by the sea here in Scotland and in Wales. So I walk along the beach or in, in the hills when the when's, weather's, weather's okay or cycle. And, and during that time, I actually do a lot of thinking. And then as soon as I come back, get back about eight or something, and then I compose right the way through to a one. And I do that every weekday and sometimes on Saturdays. Uh, I made a choice of not doing anything on Sundays, even though I, I feel like I've wasted the day um, because uh, you just have to just not. Um, so you're fresh the next time. And then the afternoon I do my teaching or my admin or uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, but what I found is when you do that, it's like a like an athlete. It's like a kind of muscle that you... So look, touch wood and touch my head. Uh, I've not had a block. Um, and I think if you compose every now and again or fit it in around things, you can easily get composer's block. Whereas if you're doing it every day, you sit down, There's the. you're not afraid of the blank manuscript because it's there every morning. Um, I think I think that's how I and I think part of that came out of my studies with Hans Abrahamson, who'd had that two to three year block, and he was afraid of that. He'll tell us himself. I'm not betraying his confidence. He's open about this. That um, seeing that black manuscript paper really got to him. So um, trying to beat that, um, I think, is what he started to do. Is every day started to do something, and I think that fed into me. Um, uh, and and that combined with 
my childhood teacher, William Mathias, who who was so prolific himself, um, and music just poured out of me. I had that, those two heritages, which were really, which which kind of have always there in my mind, you know. Um, so yeah, that's so there is a. Uh, I mean, I remember there's a wonderful program by Roald Dahl, you know, the great um, Welsh Norwegian writer of children's books, talks about his own process, and he has a similar process where every morning he would write for four hours. He went down to a shed at the bottom of the garden, I think, didn't he? That's absolutely right. He got that from Dylan Thomas. He'd been to see Dylan Thomas's house and seen this hut. That right, like, and he had about six kids or something, so he needed to get away from the noise. And he had this hut which nobody ever cleaned, and and so uh, yeah, he'd go in there and, and tuck himself into his chair and, and write his children's books, which, which were brilliant, of course. Uh, I met him once. Um, yeah, uh, he he came to North Wales to do some signings, and I went there. And he signed my book of James and the Giant Peach, and he writes the book that the magic never ends. Uh, hope it never does. <laughs> No, I'm I'm writing a children's book myself. It's it's my it's my sort of real passion and hobby, and I I just just finished it, and then I've just realised I've probably got to edit half of it out. But anyway, that's that's the side thing. But 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 I find that 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 I I get up early in the morning and I write for just an hour, even an hour. I, I typically do hour, hour and a half a day, and it's amazing how quickly that adds up to a book. Yeah, focused focused writing, but equally. If you have two weeks, like over Christmas, it just got a bit crazy for about 10 days and I didn't do any writing. And trying to start again, the muscles weren't working. It took a week or so to, 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 to start writing properly. Well, it's just the same as... It's just the same as cycling. I, I enjoy uh, mountain biking, uh, not not mad mountain bike. I mean, just around the kind of woods and stuff. Uh, and if you don't do that for a week, I mean, you've lost it. You can't do it. Um, uh, and I, I think it's the same with with creativity. That the minute you stop it, it stops you as well. Um, so you've got to keep that connection with whatever that whatever that thing is. And no one no one knows how, how do you get ideas. You know, I remember William Mathias saying, "I can I can." When I went to study with him, he said, "I can I can help you with technique, but I can't give you ideas." And I thought, that's, he's right. You can't, with my students, I can help them hone their ideas, but I can't give them any. Our ideas, do you have a problem selecting the right idea? Do you, do you have a problem generating ideas or do you have a problem rejecting the ones that aren't going to work? That, that's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Uh, I actually, have, I, have, I have the opposite of what a lot of my friends have, which is I have too many ideas. I sometimes describe it as a kind of mental illness, really. I have music coming to me all the time uh, and I have to decide how I, how I kind of, which ones I'm going to use. And that's like, I write them all down. And then I have this enormous series of books that I have or, or, or recordings where I've sung it or something because I have kind of relative pitch. So it's like um, I then decide which ones I'm going to use. Of course, I sometimes I get it wrong. Um, but people are quick to tell you when you get it wrong. <laughs> so you never need to worry about that. Uh, but most of the time I kind of don't, I think. But uh, but sometimes I have, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's sometimes With me, it's the, it's having too many ideas. And try. That's the problem with, with composers who are just starting out. And I hesitate to say the term young, because it can be any age. It's someone who's starting out, it's both with writers, is when is an idea enough? When do you need to stop um, developing it? When do you need a new idea? That comes with years of just doing it. Um, and any, any advice to, to composers, to emerging composers, is the term we use now, is that um, is to, to, to learn that. When, um, when is an idea been used too much or when have you moved away too soon from an idea uh, uh things like that are things that i i spend most of my time talking to people about now with students do you, do you have a particular process for for writing do you, you you've talked about a routine but do you do you do you write to a computer or handwrite do you, you know how, how does that work yeah it depends why it is i mean if it's kind of uh 
TV or, or theatre or anything like that, then I do do it onto the computer because you just have to because the, the director and producer want to hear it. Um, and if you've got... Uh, they, they're doing it on the piano, doing the old John Williams style, it's not cut it anymore. Uh, so I do. But when I'm composing um, concert music or choral music, I, I do it uh, on my head and just go and check things at the piano. Um, I don't use a computer for that because I think you tend to hear the computer sounds rather than the real sounds I've found. Um, even though the computer sounds are, are really good these days. Um, I prefer to do that kind of stuff. Um, when I sit down, I'm always interested in time. Maybe this comes from my time with Hans Abrahamson. Um, and so if I've got, for example, I'm writing a choral piece at the moment that's five minutes long. So I will map out on a sheet of paper five minutes and I'll decide where I want key changes to go and things like that, even before I start, so that I have a map. Um, because what I want, and I don't always get this, but what I want is at the end of the piece, people to go, oh, yeah, that, that felt the right length. Not, oh, I wish it finished after the first minute. Or, or you know, I wish I had, I want them to, oh, it just needs to feel exactly the right length. And so I quite often I use Fibonacci uh, uh, numbers and, and golden section and things like that to map out, like Debussy did, to map out uh, structures um, that feel the right length. Um, that, uh, yeah, I do that a lot with smaller pieces. It's much more difficult with bigger pieces, of course, but with smaller pieces, it's 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 much uh, vignettes. It's much more, it's much easier to do. That, that, that's really interesting. I, and I don't know to sort of bang on about my, my writing, but it's been a massive lesson to me in creating. Is I've written a story, and and she, the, my teacher has been teaching me to write chapters much more concisely and with energy and, 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 and it's getting better and better and better. And I think I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say mastering it, but I've got the concepts now. And then I finished the book and she went, oh, what? She said, because I'm aiming for a seven to nine-year-old. She said, so what's the bedside, but what book would you put it beside on the bedside table? And I went, I haven't really got one. And she went, well, she threw a few ideas. And went, yeah, it's a bit like that one, a bit like that one. And we looked at all of them and I'd written 50,000 words and all of them were 25,000, 27,000, 25,000. She said, you're going to have to go away and cook quite a lot. And that's such a beginner's cock up, really, that I hadn't thought about what I'm delivering it for. The big, the big thing is description. Um, and it's the same mm. music. I mean, if you've got opera or theatre, it's description. And, and quite a lot of people think you have to really describe things. Um, and, and Roald Dahl, to, just because to, he's just come up with children, is very good because um, most people will, if, for example, if you're describing my face, you'll, you'll start going to detail. Oh, you know, he stood there, he had round glasses and his hair was brushed back. And you go into all of these details. Well, actually, none of that is important. And Dahl says what's really important are the lips. And, uh, and what is he doing with his lips? Because that describes if someone's happy or kind or mean. And so he'll just describe one thing and then you build the image from that. And I think that is what you also do in music, not to over-describe in music, to give an impression that someone then can use their imagination. And that's always the big problem that writers starting out or composers starting out have, is that we over-describe or we, we over a colour something, uh, chromatique, we over-colour the music. And there's too much for someone to take in. And it's the same, it's the same on a, on a first hearing. You need someone to get it on a first hearing, but get more on other hearings, and it's the same with writing. We could not speak to you without mentioning the military wives. 
which not only put you at number one of the classical and pop charts simultaneously, it gave Novello Music Publisher, over 200 years old, its first number one. How did that happen? Oh, wow, I didn't know it was the first number one. That's great. Um, uh, come on, the Welsh. Yeah, no, it, it was... Um, well, that all happened by accident because um, I, I, almost everything that's happened to me is by accident. I've no, I don't have, I'm not ambitious. I never planned anything. I mean, everything just, I'm lucky. Uh, lucky and accident are all of the things that I would describe my, what's happened to me. And I think uh, um, by chance that the Duchess of Cambridge, Catherine, had heard one of my pieces and by chance they asked me to write this piece. That I, nobody knew who I was at that point. So it was like, why, why commission this guy? But anyway, so they did. And then I wrote that the piece for the Royal Wedding and, Gareth Malone had heard that, you know, the great um, the presenter. He's become a really good friend of mine. So he, he'd heard that and he was looking for a piece for this TV programme where he was getting all these military wives and girlfriends and mothers. And they happened to all be women. or There was no, there was no anti-men thing. It's just they all happened to be women. And, uh, and, and bring them together to try and give them a voice because no one was listening to them and they, they, they were so disparate. And so forming choirs was something that he'd thought of. And actually it was a huge success. And there's so many of them now across bases in UK, America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And so um, they had this big concert. He didn't tell me what it was. There was a big concert coming up and he needed a, a new piece that, that had never been done before. Because at that point he was doing kind of pop takes, you know, and arrangements of pop, which was very good stuff. And he, uh, so he said, would I write something new? And um, and I, I was on the dance floor at Chelsea Football Club. That's how I, I met him. So after the Royal Wedding, I was invited to everything. So, uh, so it was this. And, and we just, we both were dancing to Boney M and kind of knew we'd really get on with each other straight away. And so he asked me then, after he had a few whiskeys, and I, I didn't quite believe him. Because, you know, people say all sorts of stuff, don't they? When you're, when you're, would you write this, would you write that? And it never happens. So I give him my mobile number and thinking nothing would happen. But the next day he phoned and said, actually, I'm serious. That I do want you to do, to do this. Um, and so I said, well, what words? So he arranged for the, the, the women to send me their letters that they'd sent to their husbands and partners and fathers, whatever, and uh, sons. Uh, and so all this big box of it, all anonymous, so I didn't know who they were from, but these letters arrived. And so I, I actually made the lyrics out of these. There's no original words. They're all out of these letters, but I kind of rhymed it. Um, and then I wrote a little song, just as a little throwaway two-minute song. It was never thought to be anything other than just a little song, which is what it is. Um, and... Uh, they loved it, you know, and um, and of course they premiered at the Royal British Legion Festival with the Queen. Of course, I had no idea that was going to happen. And of course, it got a standing ovation. It's the first time that's ever happened. And I went to, straight to number one, I think. Um, but the problem that they had, the charts people, and the guy told me this afterwards, is that they didn't know where to chart it. Because was it a pop song? Was it a folk song? Was it a Christian song? Was it a classical song? So it actually was first in all of those charts because they just didn't they've now changed the rules since then that you can't be in more than one chart so i think i'll be the only composer that that has done that because they just can't do it anymore um but they charted in everything so it was first in the christian chart it was first in the folk chart it was, it was amazing for us and got a lot of publicity for the for the for the women and the charities um yeah and then i did the follow-up song which was in my dreams which again went to number one album uh and knocked bruce springsteen off number one song <laughs> Which I never could have dreamt when I was nine, growing up in St. Asif, that that would ever happen. But there you go. That was fun. Paul, you, meant, you mentioned in um, passing that, that you, you um, created a piece of music for, for royalty. You, you seem to have a relationship there. And, and could you talk a little bit about how that happened? And 
you know, you you wrote a piece recently. In fact, a Welsh prayer, I think it was called, for the Queen. The the you know to to remember her. How, how did that relationship start? Yeah, a number of different. Right, it started. I had a relationship with the now King Charles III, who was Prince of Wales. Then struck up through uh, through his private secretary at the time, um, who I knew very well, um, uh, and uh, I got to know him through that. Of course, he would visit Wales regularly, um, as the current Prince of Wales is doing, um, and got got to know him quite well at various events. And uh, you know, there aren't that many people in Wales, you know, so so you kind of get to know everybody. Everybody knows everybody. So I was I was invited to lots of these things. I got to know him uh, quite well, and uh, and and uh, and do lots of kind of little things and then and then it was the 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 king as he is now who introduced me to uh, William and Catherine and and actually I had a, I live on Anglesey and they are living on Anglesey at the time so I would bump into Catherine at the occasionally at the at the the uh, the bakery in the morning getting fresh bread um so uh, cuz they lived quite a normal life there you know people didn't bother them um, uh, they still have a house there so um so I got to know them a bit and then and then of course I wrote a piece for St Andrews University. I'm a fellow of the university there, and uh, and sh- uh, she heard it, and it was called "Now Sleeps the Crimson Petal," and um, and it was that 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 led to the royal wedding, um, and so then I wrote it be Caritas, um, and then they asked me to write a piece for the christening of Prince George. So I did that, and then Prince Louis afterwards, um, uh, and then uh, the Welsh prayer that you're talking about actually was originally written for uh, the king's 65th birthday which I wrote uh, the king is a huge supporter of the harp so it's for two harps and Salvi the harp makers actually commissioned that piece with the North Wales Music Festival so I did that I mean there's another one just been commissioned uh, uh, this year as well for his 75th so so it's uh, so that relationship kind of built up and I, I and then of course I moved to Scotland uh, and I live really close to Balmoral <laughs> so the queen then asked me to do music at um at Crathy Kirk, which is the church service that the Queen and now the King uh, attends every Sunday during August, September. So I do the music for that uh, and got to know them, the Queen, Elizabeth, through through that. Um, uh, so it by accident, all completely by accident. So I've written a lot of, of music for them over the over the years. And also the Queen Consort, um, Camilla, um, who is the Chancellor now of, of the university that I work at. So I wrote music for installation, and every time she comes, I do something. So it's uh, so this relationship was built up over, you know, 12, 15 years, really. Yeah, it's quite funny, because when it started, it was very surreal, because, of course, you're, I, you're sat there talking to the Prince of Wales, and it's just like, wow, what, how did this happen? But over time, you get to know them, and they get to trust that you're going to do um, what you say you're going to do. Um, and 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 it kind of works. Uh, so no, it's been a fa- fabulous. Uh, I mean, the the king uh, is has a remarkable knowledge of music, which I don't think is reported enough about. I mean, you can sit down and talk to him about anything musical, arts wise. He knows quite a bit about it. He was a cellist. He sang many things. I mean, if you go into his study, it's full of CDs of of, of classical music, but also folk music. Huge lover of folk music, um, uh, all sorts of music, um, uh, and you can talk a great length. I mean, I wrote a when the, he celebrated his. 50 years as, as Prince of Wales, it was a, a party at Buckingham Palace, and I wrote a folk song for that. Um, and so spoke to him afterwards at great length about Welsh folk music, because it was in Welsh, uh, which he knew a great deal about. Um, you're surprised that someone that has to know so much about so many things knows so much about your area. Um, I think that's that's amazing. Yeah, I think he's quite remarkable. I remember um, the composer Richard Rodney Bennett, who I know you love, uh, Paul, uh, wrote a piece in memory of the Queen Mother, for Charles, and we went to Highgrove, uh, and and you know he, the the now king was very, sort of 
interrogative of Richard in terms of what, you know, I don't want it to sound like this composer or that composer and blah, blah, blah. And then when we ended up playing it through at um, Highgrove, Richard on the piano, me turning pages, Paul Watkins with the cold playing the cello, and Richard turned to me and said, wouldn't it be funny if the Queen popped in with a cup of tea? But he was sitting there with a score, you know, you know, a good reader of music. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Cratty Kirk, and um, I think faith is quite important to you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a, a long story. I, I am, uh, I had, when I was young, I was uh, nine, uh, so everything happened at nine. Uh, I My brother used to look after me and, and uh, I fell into a river in Dimshligui on, on Anglesey and I couldn't swim at that point. And uh, I was drowning. And as I was drowning, my brother had gone upstream to try and find a crossing. So me being hyperactive and naughty, I I just didn't do what he said. So it wasn't his fault. It was completely my fault. And I fell into the river and I was drowning. And as I was drowning, I, you fight for a while. If you've ever had experience like that. And then there comes a point where you just can't fight anymore. So you kind of surrender. Uh, and I did. And at that point, I felt the most amazing warmth come over me. Just unbelievable warmth. I didn't see any visions or hear anything, but I just felt incredibly comfortable that death was not bad. Um, it was just inevitable. Um, and so I was dying. I thought that was, this is it. And um, at nine, you don't really know, have the concepts of all this stuff. You just know, it, it, you just know this is the end. And then I was dragged out by a passerby and resuscitated. And, and a lot after that, I, I'd said to my dad that I really want to find out what that warmth is. Um, what, what is it? Um, uh, and so the only thing that my parents could think of was to take me to the, the Anglican uh, Church in Wales Cathedral, which was St. Asaph, where we were close to, and talk to the dean. Uh, so when I, and he arranged, uh, uh, Kerry Goldston, his name was, he's died now, but I went, we went uh, in and I was stuff, I was nine and a half. And as we went in to wait for the dean, the choir was rehearsing. So uh, that, that's how it came. And I felt in that sound, that kind of warmth that, that I was after. So when I went, to, and they were doing John Rutter's What Sweeter Music and, Gibbon, CC, The Word is Incarnate, were the two pieces they were rehearsing, uh, which have remained two absolute favourite pieces of mine. So I went in to talk to the to the dean and I said, I, I don't need to talk to you now, I've got the answers. And he said, well, music will give you an answer much better than I ever could. So that's when I joined the choir. So it, that my faith started from to try and capture that, that, that war, to try and understand it. And of course, depending, I, I think now I'm older and more intelligent, is, is that, to be honest, whatever faith my parents would have been, they'd have took me to that. Uh, so um, I'm more spiritualist than deeply stuck into one particular faith, although I call myself Christian. I think there is a, a, a spiritual kind of Gaia that, that exists that uh, we just can't describe. We try and describe and fail all the time in religion. But um, but there's something much more powerful. I don't know if there's a life everlasting, and actually it doesn't it doesn't interest me. What interests me is what we're doing now. Um, uh, and I think that that's and so I've tried. So a lot of people talk about my, my music as having a warmth. So I'm trying to recapture that warmth and failing miserably, of course, as every human always does. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I've I've spent the morning listening to your music, and I don't think you're failing. I can see the connection. I really can. Absolutely, and I think you know you've written a lot for choral music inspired by liturgical texts, some by folk texts. Favorite of mine is your Avon Kiss setting. I have to say, come out on that. Um, you forayed into film and TV in the past few years, haven't you? You know, with uh, your scores for Wonders of the Celtic Deep, have you enjoyed sort of dancing to that very different tune? Yeah, I have. Uh, it's uh, it was it was wonderful, uh, and there's all sorts of things being lined up and talked about uh, about other things as well. But the the thing that struck me 
about it is that you're, you're part of a team. It's not a lot of composers. It's all about them. Uh, what I love about about this is that, that there's the director's vision, and then you're part of that team to make that happen. And and we had a great director, Dale Dale Templer, who was fabulous. I mean, she she'd done um, uh, Blue Planet and all that kind of stuff, so so she knew exactly what she was doing. And she her first degree was in music, so she understood music. Uh, and so I sat down you know, on Zoom because it was we, I, this was all done during lockdown. Um, and so, um, and she talked me through what she was after, the feelings that she was after. Um, and so I had a really strong idea of the, the, the emotion that she was trying. And the funniest thing about that is if you get it wrong, you destroy the whole show. Um, it all rests on the music. And she said that. And then what was great about working with her, and, and we're, we're planning to work together again later this year or next year, is um, uh, if the music was even better than she'd imagined, she changed the dialogue and took dialogue out and actually went with the music. And there aren't many directors, I think, that would do that. So she was open. You know, for, I wrote a scene where there are dolphins. The first time they ever captured dolphins, mate. Wonder of the Celtic Deep is about for those people who are listening, is a, is a four-part TV series uh, for BBC looking at the wonders, the, the waters all around the UK. Um, and so there's one scene where they capture male and female dolphins mating for the first time that had never been recorded before ever. Uh, and they didn't even know what was happening when they were recording it by accident. Um, and it's the most unbelievable thing because they, they, they dance um, around until they finally find their mates and they judge each other by dancing, which is amazing. So she wanted a dance of the dolphins, which is nine minutes long. The scene is nine minutes. So I wrote a dance of the dolphins, a big, epic, um, full symphony orchestra chorus, the lot. Um, and uh, uh, and so she cut when, when when I played it to her, uh, she cut the dialogue. So she cut all of Dame Sean Phillips's dialogue. So it's just the music. Uh, and there are very few directors that will let that happen. Spielberg is one of them, but let John Williams' music speak for the scene. Um, and, and it was so much fun. I really, I really enjoyed it. We should make that actually a standalone little concert piece, The Dance of the Dolphins. It's really fantastic, you know, and even without the imagery, which is also beautifully shot. And I think, um, so that's been a good experience for you then, and you've got some films coming up. Uh, so in a sense, you're the complete musician. You're working in every genre. I never feel like that, but uh, <laughs> it's amazing how much you how much you continue to learn on set, you know, with that kind of thing. Um, you just learn so much about speed and time. Um, and one of the one of the great blessings that I've had to be able to write quickly. So you'll do a scene, and the director will go, "Actually, that's not working. You've got to do it there and then, because uh, the orchestra's been paid for that session. So you've got to do that two minute." Think, write it there and then. And to have those kinds of skills uh, and just to try out and see if you can do it, I think is, I think every composer should be tested like that because I think that's a real skill to be able to do that. Um, you've done an awful lot of stuff in, 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 in Wales and you're obviously uh, from, from Wales. Um, how, 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 how does, what, what does Wales mean for you and, and how do you think it's kind of informed what you do? Yeah, everything. I mean, I wouldn't be a musician if it wasn't for Wales. I think I think the, the kind of the musicality of the country um, uh, feeds into me. That the, the melodies there's a, there's a darkness in their melodies, even when they're all about light. <laughs> there's a kind of that Dylan Thomas talks about it brilliantly. That uh, that uh, every every Wel Welsh person is running towards the precipice. <laughs> sometimes we stop. Sometimes we jump over. Uh, and there's this kind of Celtic uh, uh, um, need to do that, which I think, which comes through. I mean, I've noticed it in Scotland, living here for twenty years as well. There's there is a similarity in that in that 
kind of sense. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, uh, just, I mean, uh, I love living in Scotland. I, I really adore it. But as soon as I, I, I drive back into uh, into Wales, it's home. You know, it's where I grew up. And I suddenly start feeling very different um, in Snowdonia and in, in Anglesey. And, and, and just being surrounded by water is, is really important to me. Uh, my family originally were fisher men and women growing up in that, that I love fish. <laughs> going out fishing, I have my own boat and stuff. Uh, and just, I can think of nothing better than being sat on a boat with a fishing rod. You don't catch anything just in the middle of the sea overlooking Snowdonia. I think uh be happy just to kind of die there <laughs> at some point. <laughs> well, I, 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 I was born in Grimsby, which is a fishing town and by the sea, but of Welsh Welsh blood. And so I, I, I understand what, what you're saying. I, I actually think the Welsh anthem is one of the most beautiful pieces of music. And when you were talking about that sort of the, the the darkness and the light within it's it's a tremendously moving piece of music and when when the crowd sing it at, at a Welsh rugby match it's it's very moving I think the best the best anthem in the world it, it, it's up there I mean even when it was voted throughout Europe it was up there in the top six I think uh, because it is so passionate and everyone knows it I mean that's the amazing thing. most people don't know their anthems um, and so it, it's amazing that we have that um, uh, and it, it, oh you can't help but just shout the hell out of it can you when, you, when you're in the rugby pitch you know? but it feels what, so Welsh you know, I'm sure it's because it's been layered on to Wales but yeah it, it's true yeah. yeah it is yeah no I love it no, I do yeah This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening. <laughs>